But then he says this, and this is what Hebrews quotes. Indeed, a time is coming, says Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. It will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I delivered them from Egypt, for they violated that covenant, even though I was like a faithful husband to them, says Yahweh. But I will make a new covenant with the whole nation of Israel. After I plant them back in the land, says Yahweh, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and minds. I will be their God, and they will be my people. People will no longer need to teach their neighbor and their relatives to know me, for all of them, from the least important to the most important, will know me, says Yahweh. For I will forgive their sins and will no longer call to mind the wrong they have done. That is a very famous passage, and I'm going to unpack it because, like I said, we're going to spend a lot of time on the prophecies of the second coming and the return from exile. And the author of Hebrews breaks this down. And there are very few passages that we've had so far that has talked about a new covenant. That word has been used briefly, but we have not really seen the idea of a new covenant been unpacked like we have here. Let's start at the beginning, verse 31. Indeed, a time is coming, says Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. Now, what this is, is two things. First, this covenant can be made with Israel and Judah both. God has already said a day will come when the tribes in the north and the tribes in the south will be reunited into one nation again. So he says this will, they will, it will include all tribes. There will be no lost tribe. There will be no left out tribe. It will include everybody. But the other thing he says, new covenant. New covenant means it's not the Mosaic covenant. It's not the covenant you've been under. And this is what the author of Hebrews is arguing. He says literally in Hebrews, by calling this covenant new, Jeremiah is saying that the old is obsolete and done and gone. Now, I don't know how anybody can argue that we're still under the law when you read books like Galatians and Hebrews. Paul makes it very clear, and Galatians and the author of Hebrews makes it clear that we're not under the law anymore. Now, I know that under the law versus not under the law is a complicated issue, but the author of Hebrews literally says, by calling this one new, he is saying the old one is obsolete, meaning done away with. New replaces old. He says there will be a new covenant, which means it will be different. Now, it might have some similarities. There's a lot of similarities between the old covenant, the Mosaic law, and the new covenant with Christ. But... It's not going to be exactly the same, or you wouldn't need a new covenant. So there will be differences. It will not be like the old covenant. And he says it right there, point blank. It will not be like the old covenant. I made with their ancestors when I delivered them from Egypt, for they violated that covenant, even though I was like a faithful husband to them. Now, what God is implying here is that the old covenant failed to keep them from being, to keep them obedient. The old covenant failed to bring them to obedience and to keep them from sinning. And that's the point because he says, because I made with their ancestors when I delivered them from Egypt, for they violated that covenant even though I was like a faithful husband to them. Even though I dwelt with them, even though I had intimate relationships with them, even though I took care of them, they still disobeyed me and violated that covenant. That covenant wasn't able to do what you wanted to do. Now, This is the point that author of Hebrews and Paul are both making. It's not that the old covenant was meant to make us better people and redeem us and save us and transform us. And God's plan A covenant failed. And he's like, well, got to come up with a better covenant that will actually work. 
That's not the point. The point is that God knew that the old covenant could never change people. It could never save them. And Paul says that it was only a tutor until something better can come along, Jesus Christ. The point is that Jesus wasn't here yet. So God was giving them something. Something is better than nothing. Now remember the whole point of the law was one, to reveal the righteousness of God. When you live in a fallen world where everybody is involved in sin and horrible things in the ancient world, and you're a sinner and I'm a sinner, we're all a sinner, it's hard to know what righteousness is if you don't see it anywhere around you. And so the only way you can know what righteousness is is when the divine God of the universe, who's actually righteous, comes down on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and says, this is what righteousness looks like. And he gives you the Ten Commandments and a whole bunch of other laws to help unpack those Ten Commandments. So then the second purpose of the law was to reveal our sin. Because what we're going to do now is we're going to try to meet the law. We're going to try to not murder. And remember, murder is not just physically murder, but murder like in your heart and anger and all that kind of stuff. And we're going to try not to have affairs. Remember, affairs is not just the physical act, but also lusting. We're, not, we're going to try not to steal, which is not physical. It's also stealing people's ideas, stealing people's time, stealing people's energy and their emotions. So remember, those laws went way deeper than just physical actions. They went to the heart. And that last one, do not covet, reveals that. So when we try to actually live righteousness in our thoughts and deeds and have a pure heart, we realize, oh my gosh, I can't do this. I'm failing so miserably. There's no way I can get to this. And then what it does, it reveals that I'm a sinner. So now I know what righteousness is, and then now I know I'm a sinner and I can't do it. And now what do normal people do, not stubborn people, but, and not Americans who say, if they fail you first, if at first you fail, then try, try again. Now that's good to a certain extent. I don't want my kids to quit after trying one, one time, but we can carry that too far. But normal people, when you can't do something and you try over and over again, you ask for help. The point of the law was to reveal our need for a savior. And when you realize that every form of government we've ever had, and you realize all this other stuff has never actually made the world a better place, individuals led by the Spirit of God have made things better, and we have made people's lives a little bit better, but nothing has changed the world and brought utopia. We need help. And then when the world fails miserably, I believe one of the reasons that Christ waited thousands of years to come was sometimes, you know when you're like, hey, you go to your kid or some student and you're like, hey, do you need some help? They're like, no, I can do this. And you're like, I know you can't do this. But you just let them like spin their wheels in the mud and wear themselves out. And then when they finally hit rock bottom, they're like, okay, I need help. You're more likely to get help when you've you're broken. Um, people who are addicted, you can't make them change. They have to be broken enough to want to change. And so when we spend thousands of years with every form of economy and every form of government and every form of whatever, and we still are a miserable world that's killing each other and destroying ourselves, then many, many, many people, not everybody, when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, they're like, yes, finally, a savior. And the next section, when we get to the fall, we're going to go through the final books of the First Testament, and then we're going to talk about the intertestamental period. And when we go through the time of the, Romans, the Greeks and the Romans, and I show you what that world is like, 
you will better understand why the people of Israel were so desperate for Jesus when he finally arrived during the gospel time period. And so it's to reveal our need for a, a savior. We need a savior. And that's what he's saying. That law was never meant to save you. It was never meant to make you righteous. It was meant for you to see your need for God. But you didn't turn to God. And that's why you had to go into exile and be broken even more. Until finally you're so broken under the Greeks and the Romans that you'll finally be willing to reach out for my son when he arrives. That's the new covenant. The new covenant that's not like the old is that the new covenant will actually be able to change you. It will actually be able to make you a better person. It will actually save you. It will actually make you righteous. Now, he's not saying that here directly, but he is indirectly saying it, and we'll see that as we unpack it. But I will make a new covenant, verse 33, with the whole nation of Israel after I plant them back in the land, says Yahweh. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and minds. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, this is where he gets very specific. The law was written on what? The Mosaic law. Stone tablets. It was an external document hanging on the wall. And you can't go to that document on the wall and say, empower me to be saved and righteous. Okay, all we can do is study the law, figure out what it does, and then try our best to do it. And through prayer in the Holy Spirit, he can guide us. But what God is saying is a day will come when the law will be written on your hearts. It will be literally carved in, well, it won't literally, sorry. It will be metaphorically carved in your hearts because it will literally come with the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And that's what God is saying. He's pointing to the Spirit of God that will come into our hearts and our hearts will be softened and circumcised like what we talked about last week, which will enable the law to be written in our hearts, which will actually transform our hearts because our hearts will actually start becoming the law. And our hearts will want to do the law. Our hearts will be able to do the law, which we call sanctification. So he's saying a time is coming when I'm going to circumcise your hearts But here's the cool imagery. I'm not going to circumcise it with a knife. I'm going to circumcise it with the pen of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to write it into your heart. And as I carve my law with my personal spirit into it, it will be transformed and circumcised as time goes on. And that's what I'm going to do. Now, remember, he doesn't say that specifically here, but he's already talked about circumcision. And other prophets have talked about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So when you put all this together in context, this is what he's tapping into. He's tapping into that theme and that metaphor that he's been developing. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Meaning that they won't just say, yeah, you're my God, but he will literally be their God. They'll say it and they'll mean it, and they'll live it. Now remember, you're like, well, wait a minute, we haven't become completely perfect yet. Well, yeah, that's the key, yet. Okay, we already know that we're not what we ought to be, but we're not what we used to be. And it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, the fact that we can see that sanctification process points to that. But here's the other thing. We know that we will get to that point one day. We know that God has promised that the work that he's begun in us, he's faithful to complete and finish. And we'll get to that point one day. 
So he says this, people will no longer need to teach their neighbors and relatives to know me, for they will all know from the least important to the most important, they will know me, says Yahweh. Now, at first it sounds like you don't need me and you're wasting your time with me standing here teaching you because he said you don't need teachers. So we should fire all of our pastors, all of our sin school teachers, all of our Christian school teachers, everybody, because God just said a day is coming when you won't need a teacher. But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying you won't need somebody to help you understand the law. He doesn't say that we don't need to be in small groups helping people understand what God might be saying and guiding us in our lives. And not just official teachers like me, but even unofficial teachers like our advisor, or our advisor's college, our mentors, or our accountability partners, or just close friends that we pray with. And we pray about what is the Holy Spirit saying to me right now about this? And somebody has a word, and you're like, wow, I totally need to hear that. He's not saying you don't need that, because it totally violates the idea of community. What he's saying is, you will no longer need somebody to say, know God. And the only way you can know God is through a teacher. You definitely come to classes with your pastor, with me and other people. And these people spend a long time trying to study the word and do things that you don't have time for because you have other gifts like evangelism or whatever. And you're investing in that. And so together as a body of Christ, I can learn a lot from you with your gifts and you can learn a lot from me with my gifts. But you are not dependent upon your teachers to know God and have a relationship with them. Teachers can help you better understand the Greek and the Hebrew of the Bible better understand the cultural background of that time period. They can help you better understand how the themes, literary and genre are all working together. They can help you understand the theology better. But you don't need me or your pastor to have a relationship with God. And that's what he means. You will not need a teacher to know God, to be in a relationship with God. Now, why is he saying that? Because in the Mosaic law, they needed prophets to know God. Remember, if you don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you don't know what God is saying. And remember, the only way that you could ever know what God is saying to you is through the mouthpiece of a prophet. That's why God sent so many prophets. And that's why they say, thus saith Yahweh. And so the prophet was the only one who had been in the divine council of Yahweh. The prophet was the only one who heard the actual words of God. The prophet was the only one commissioned by God with his lips purified like Jeremiah or his lips atoned for like Isaiah with the burning coal who could come and give you the words of God. Nobody else had that spirit on top of them. Nobody had that spirit guiding and speaking to them. So when the prophet came, you were literally, utterly dependent upon the prophet in order to know the will of God. That's the only source. And remember, the Bible wasn't written down. The Bible was orally memorized at times, or it was on scrolls and the priests and that kind of stuff. And most people were illiterate, so they didn't even have access to the written word. Remember, literacy didn't even start declining until like the 1600s in America and Europe. So here's the thing. Here's why this is so important. What happens when the prophet's wrong? Remember Elijah? He got it wrong. And remember the ripple effects? Okay, so Elijah said, I'm not going to anoint Haziel, and I'm not going to anoint Jehu. 
So the message got um, relayed to Elisha. This is why it's so important to understand that story, because that story perfectly illustrates what's going on here. So he relays it to Elisha. And Elisha's like, well, if Elijah can pass the buck of anointing Jehu, I'll pass the buck. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what he's thinking, but he passed the buck. So he passed it to the junior varsity prophet, who's not even named. And remember, when God doesn't name people, it's usually a judgment on them because they really screw things up. And he goes and he takes three different prophecies and mixes them together and then gives them to Jehu and gives him divine permission to wipe everybody out in the family of Ahab. And God never said that. So Jehu ends up slaughtering hundreds upon people. And he thinks he's doing it in the name of God. And how can Jehu verify whether he's right or wrong by going to the prophet? But the prophet told him that. And there's not a whole lot of prophets to go to. And a lot of times the prophets were seen as crazy people. And so he has no way to fact check whether this prophet's right or wrong. And he assumes if he's a prophet, he's right. And so if the prophet says this is who God is and he gets it wrong, he mucks up the entire nation. And he can't. And God is saying no longer will there be a day when you're going to be utterly dependent upon a small handful of men or women who are the only ones who know God and they're flawed humans and you don't know whether they're getting it right or wrong unless uh, lots of prophets are saying it. But if you're living in Jeremiah's time, all the prophets are saying God's not going to destroy you. And only one guy's not. And what if you think it's a democracy? Majority rules. So here's what he's saying. A day will come when you won't need that anymore. A day will come when you will actually have the divine counsel of Yahweh in you, called the Holy Spirit. And you will actually hear the voice of God. Now, different people hear it differently. Okay, I believe that God speaks to people in different ways. God speaks to you through your personality. God speaks to me through like a lot of rational, logical thinking. He speaks to my wife through a lot of emotional stuff. I know people that feel God through nature and stuff. You can't say this is the only way you can hear God because we all have different personalities. But you can say it might be your wishful thinking and not God speaking to you. And that's where we come together as a community and we pray. And we say, hey, I think God is telling me this. Will you pray with me to help verify it? Because we're not idiots and we don't want to act like idiots because we know we're sinful. And so we always want to help get the community to verify it. But here's what it means. If you come to me and you tell me, God said to me that you should quit your job and sell everything and go off to like whatever, I can say, why didn't God tell me that? Okay, I don't need you. You're not my only source of knowing what God wants. I can say, wow, maybe God is speaking to you. I'm going to spend a lot of time praying on that and see if you're right. And I'm going to bring other believers that I trust and, and we're going to pray about this. And then maybe God says, yeah, that is my voice, or no, that is not my voice. But you know what? I'm dependent upon the Spirit in me and the Spirit in everybody. I'm not just dependent upon you and you alone. And that's what God is saying. A day will come when the Holy Spirit will be in everyone, and we will not be utterly dependent upon a small 1% of people who are the only ones who know God's will, and they're sinners, and they're flawed, and they can muck it all up for us and ruin our lives. We will all know God, and we can go to multiple Christians 
because we all have the divine counsel of God, because we're all prophets now. We're all prophets. Now remember, prophet doesn't mean I can see the future and predict it. That is about 1% of what the prophets did. Prophet means someone who speaks the will of God. And that's all a prophet is. So if the Holy Spirit is speaking his will to you, then you're a prophet. Could some people be more gifted as a prophet than other people? Perhaps, yes. I don't deny the gifts of the Spirit. I think they're very much alive today. But I don't think any group of people have a monopoly on the gift of prophet because the gift of prophet is something that God has given everyone through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There might be some who are more in tuned to the voice of God because they've nurtured that in their prayer life. But I don't think anybody has a monopoly on that. And that's what God is saying. No one has a monopoly on knowing God. Anyone who receives the Holy Spirit knows God. Does that make sense? That's what Jeremiah is saying. And that's why you and I live in a completely unique time. Because the law is in us and not on that wall over there. Not that you can't have it on the wall over there. I'm just saying it's not the only place. Then he goes on and says, For all of them, from the least important to the most important, will know me. Now remember, usually the only people who got the anointing of God were priests, kings, and prophets, and a few other exceptions. And kings were always prominent people. And the priests had become prominent. Prophets were all depending on what kind of a weird personality you had or did not have. And so, but God is saying from the least of you to the greatest of you, everyone will get this. This will not be a unique privilege among a certain tribe, the Levites, or a unique privilege among a certain tribe like the Judaites, or a unique privilege among those weird prophets who live out in the wilderness and do weird things and say weird things. Everybody, from the greatest to the least, will have the Spirit poured on them. Remember, we've already read verses where the Spirit of God is being poured out on people, and so that fits in this. And he says, For I will forgive your sins and will no longer call to mind the wrong they have done. Now this is powerful too, because remember, nobody's sins were completely forgiven in the First Testament. The animal sacrifices only covered your sins. Because this is what the author of Hebrews is making. No blood of any goat or any ox or any lamb could ever take away your sins. If it could, we wouldn't need Jesus Christ. That lamb does not go of its own volition. You grab it by the neck and you drag it to the slaughter. And it's one tiny little animal that has nothing. It's nowhere even close to a human, so it's not your peer. It hasn't sinned, and it, or sorry, and it doesn't, it's, 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 it's not enough blood, it's not enough life to pay for your sins. But Christ, willingly, of his own volition, gave his own life, and as an eternal being who lives forever, he has enough dying, for lack of a better word, to pay for everybody's death, and his blood can going and going and going for all eternity. And so he died, according to Hebrews 10, once and for all, for all people, for all sins. And that's the point he's making. See, when you sacrifice an animal, all you're doing is sweeping your sin under the rug and shoving it under the bed and putting it in the closet so that God can come in your room and at least be comfortable with you a little bit, for lack of a better phrase. I know I'm like degrading that elementary big time. But he can dwell with you in the tabernacle 
because he sees that your faith is making an effort to at least say, I'm sorry, and I want to be with God. But your sins haven't been taken away until his son dies for you. And when, your son, when his son dies for you, then Jesus comes in and completely cleanses everything in your bedroom, all the dirt under the bed, in the cracks of the floorboards, everywhere. And this is then your sins are truly forgiven. And that's what he's saying. A day will come when the law will no longer cover your sins, the new covenant will take away your sins and you'll be completely forgiven. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, why would you ever want to go back to the Mosaic law after you've had Jesus? If Jesus is greater than law, greater than the priesthood, greater than the sacrifices, then why would you want to go back to what is inferior? It's like having the best steak ever and then saying, I want bologna still. Of course, I just gave that example one to the little kids, and the kid was like, I want bologna still. It's like way better. So I guess the analogy only works with certain people. So this is what God is saying. Jeremiah 31, 31 is probably one of the most comprehensive, most specific without confusion point that God is making that the new covenant is actually going to replace and go way further than the old covenant ever could. And this is what Jeremiah is pointing to. Jeremiah 31, 35. Yahweh has made promise to Israel. He promises as one who fixed the sun to give light by day and the moon and the stars to give light by the night. He promises as one who stirs up the sea to that of the waves roll. He promises as the one who known Yahweh who rules over all. Yahweh affirms. So he says, just as surely as you are, that every day the sun will be there and every night the moon will be there and the sea has never dried up. This is a promise that you can count on. If there's one thing in nature that never ever disappears, it's the sun and the moon and the stars. They're always there, guaranteed all the time. And God says, just as assured as you are that they'll be there, so God has promised that this covenant will always, that it is coming one day and it will always last. 36, Yahweh affirms that the descendants of Israel will not cease forever to be a nation in my sight. They could only, that could only happen if the fixed ordering of the heavenly lights were to cease to operate before me. So I promise you that the nation of Israel will not pass away, just like the sun, the moon, and the stars will not pass away. Yahweh says, I will not reject all the descendants of Israel because of all that they have done. That could only happen if the heavens above could be measured or the foundations of the earth below could be explored, says Yahweh. Indeed, a time is coming, says Yahweh, when the city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt as a special city. It will be rebuilt for the Tower of Hanel, westward to Corner Gate, and the boundary line will extend beyond that, straight west from there to the hill of Garab, and then turn southward to Goa, and the whole valley were dead bodies, and the whole valley were dead bodies, and sacrificial ashes are thrown and all the terrace fields out to the Kidron Valley on the east as far as the north of the horse gate will be included within the city that is sacred to Yahweh. The city will never again be torn down or destroyed. Now this is important. You're like, I don't know where all these places are. But they're physical, literal, geographical boundary markers. Which means God's promises are just not metaphorical, they're also physical. That he will restore them to the land. And he also makes it clear that even the valley where you throw the ashes of sacrifices and dead bodies 
I will restore you. What he means is that's where they were sacrificing humans to their pagan gods and the valley of right below the temple. In fact, there was so much bloodshed that had been shed over the years there that that is one of the luscious, greenest valleys in all of Judah because of all the iron in the blood that has been spilled in that valley. Even today, when you go to Israel, it'll be kind of patchy and brown, kind of green here and there and there. And then you go to that valley, and it is luscious green. And it's beautiful, but it's also kind of sickening to know why it's so green and beautiful. And God is saying, even there, even there, I will restore the city and make things new. So, Corey, are you saying that Israel today is still God's special people? Yes and no. Is Israel today still God's chosen people or special people? They are in the sense that God has made physical promises to them and he wants to physically restore them because they are his people. I mean, this is what Paul is saying to the Jew first and then to the Gentile because the Jews were his primary. Not, no, no, it wasn't like the Jews only and you're not special. It was that the Jews was the people he chose to be the vehicle that everybody else came into the nation for. However, they failed to do that, so he judged them and put them in exile. So right now, the best illustration I've ever come up with is, I don't believe in replacement theology where the church replaces Israel and does away with them. But I also don't believe that it's just ethnic Jews, and you have to somehow be adopted into them completely in a literal sense. Um, I, and I do believe that Paul is saying adopted into the Jewish people, but I don't think he means that meta, um, biologically. I think he means that metaphorically by faith. I think it's a yes and it's a yes and no. That yes, they are his chosen people physically. They will come back to him one day, but not that we have to somehow become Jewish in order to be part of it, because that was the whole point of the Council of Acts when they're saying you don't have to do this stuff. They're in time out right now. And I really do believe that the God has made the point all through the Bible that the true Israel are the people of faith. Abraham was a Babylonian. When God chose him, there was no such thing as Jews. And God just came to him and said, you're going to be my people now. And he didn't magically transform Abraham's biology and his genetics. He was a Babylonian. He acted like a Babylonian. He raised his kids like Babylonians to his detriment and their detriment. And eventually the Jewish nation came about, but they only came about by adoption. God adopted him and his people. And then remember over and over again, Uriah the Hittite, not a Jew, came in. Rahab, okay, Moab, or um, Ruth, and Tamar, not, they're not Jews. And yet they make it into the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which means Jesus is not 100% ethnically a Jew either. He's part Gentile and part, I mean, if you have at least three women and your great-grandma line who are way not Jewish, then you're not completely Jewish either. And then when the Jews were not responding, God's like, you think your descendants of Abraham make you special and that somehow you're privileged to the blessings of God and nobody else is and the Gentiles are not? He says, I can make descendants out of these rocks out of here. Meaning the point is not biology, the point is faith. So I really think the point that God is making all through the Bible has always been about faith, which makes you true Israel. And that's why lots of ethnic Jews were killed and destroyed and they didn't go into the promised land, and they didn't go to heaven with God. That's the whole point of the wilderness generation. The author of Hebrews is making the point that they were Jewish, and they saw God, and they walked with God, and they experienced his miracles, but because they had no faith, they died. And they did not receive the blessings or never will receive the blessings. 
But then he points to other people by faith came into it. So, but at the same time, he did start with choosing ethnic people. They became an ethnic people. He worked through an ethnic people. So somehow those promises will apply to those ethnic people one day. When we get to Revelation, I think Revelation makes it very clear that both ethnic Israel and the Gentiles are all going to come together to be one body of Christ. So in that sense, I say yes and no. And right now, I think they're in time out, but there are lots of Jews who do come to Christ, and one day there's going to be a huge revival. So if that helps answer the question. So I do not believe in the extremes. I do not believe the church has replaced Israel, nor do I believe that the church has to become Israel somehow in order to be that. I believe that Israel is faith and is both Jew and Gentile. And God used the Jews to get the Gentiles for a long time, and now he's using the Gentiles to get the Jews. But Paul also makes it very clear in Romans 11 that he could go back to using the Jews to get the Gentiles in if we abuse it and are disobedient and decide to go our own way. Because he will only use people of faith. He will only use people of faith. That will become clear as we go through Ezekiel. And I think and it will make clear when, because even Jesus says, Behold, I'm going to the Gentiles. And just like the, nobody in Israel during the times of Elijah accepted God, and only the Gentiles did, so it is with me. And that, they got so angry they tried to kill him. So that's a powerful theological statement that the Gentiles are also included. And there's nothing special about Israel, ethnically speaking. 